0: Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Mike Michalowicz. Mike is a serial entrepreneur who has successfully sold two of his companies. Mike has also endured the ups and downs that comes along with entrepreneurship. His mission is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty and has written several books, including Get Different, Fix This Next, The Pumpkin Plan, and a soon-to-be-released book called Clockwork. Mike, thanks for coming on today.
1: Oh, Darren, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks
0: for having me. So your book, Get Different, actually inspired me to do the format of this, this episode a little bit differently and to jump right into it. Normally I have to do a little bit of a backstory, but let's just go right there. So I talk a lot about greatness, which to me is the intersection of purpose and success. And you talk about in your one of your books, in terms of finding your greater why,
1: do you mind just telling me a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, when I became an author 15 years ago, I, I went full time. Like, this is the only thing I do. I released my first book, and my launch was so miserable. I sold zero books that day. And to give context, my own mother didn't buy a book that day. Like it was a bad day. I subsequently met with a person I've been introduced to named Yannick Silver. He's in Maryland, down in New Jersey, and he's been very successful in the internet space internet marketing. And he invited me to come down and, and discuss the book and, and how to market. And I remember I went, met with him down at his place and we're playing pool. He lights up a dude, by the way. And he like, it's like, it's, it's like, I was meeting with the godfather. He takes a smoke, he blows stuff in my face. And he says, why are you doing this? Like, what is the big reason behind this? And it really started me, I started to explore it. I found that my mission is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. I've struggled with entrepreneurial poverty myself. I started a business thinking I'd be wealthy and I was poor. I I thought thought I'd have personal freedom and I was trapped by the business. So I'm like, that's what I'm trying to fix. He goes, does this book resolve that? The one I'm working on? I said, yeah. He goes, is it better than the competitions? Do you feel? And I said, yeah, in so many ways. It's everything I know. He goes, and you have a goddamn responsibility to market the hell out of this for the rest of your life. And it was a wake-up call for me, plus a little bit of a buzz from the weed. But it was a wake-up call of the century that I had to go all in on my book. And and it's not a build-it-and-they-will-come type of thing. It is a build-it, promote-it-for-the-rest-of-your-life-because-it-matters-to-others-and-yourself type of method. And uh, that's what I've done ever since.
0: Yeah, do you mind just going a little bit backwards? I know it is in reading your book and hearing that story, it just it seemed like an epiphany. Obviously, just given how succinct you stated that and you stated here today, even is like, what's the backstory on that in terms of just that goal of eradicating entrepreneurial poverty?
1: Well, my backstory. So I, I started, became an entrepreneur when I was uh, right out of college. And I struggled and pushed these businesses forward, but I was able to sell the first one to private equity. I started a second company and it was acquired by a Fortune 500. I became a millionaire and I was like, oh my God, I know how to build business. I am so smart. My big fat ego got in my way. One thing that's important to know is those businesses were never profitable when I was building them. It was only when I sold them. So I'm like, oh, pump and dump. So I started a third business as an angel investor. I started 10 companies, eight or 10 companies simultaneously. and They all collapsed. And I was paying bills like for companies that didn't exist. And I eradicated all my wealth. I got a call from my accountant. I'll never forget the day. It was February 14th, Valentine's Day. 2008. And he says, You got to declare bankruptcy. Like, you lost everything. I could see it logically going. I couldn't emotionally accept it until that moment. I came home to my family. I have three children and my wife. And in tears, sobbing tears, I told him, We're a little, we've lost everything. I've lost everything. We lost our house 30 days after that. And we lost uh our cars, you know, possessions. We had started new. And uh, my daughter, she was 12, uh, nine years old at the time. She ran to her bedroom, grabbed her piggy bank, came running back to me on the table and she said, I'll never forget. She goes, daddy, since you can't provide for our family, I'll start providing. I felt so ashamed, but it also became this calling that I really didn't understand entrepreneurship. I thought I did. I was this lucky. And I would devoted my life now to investigate every element of entrepreneurship. Today, I own I'm a shareholder in six small businesses and, and I use all these strategies in my own businesses. Every book I write is stuff that I need to know for myself. My hope is everything I write will serve other entrepreneurs in the same space.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic and inspiring. And it's just, it's amazing what a reflection our kids can be in our own lives. And I think about my two boys and just how they've been there for me, just, you know, interestingly enough, despite they're only 10 and 12, just how much insight they can have.
1: Yeah. From babe's mouths, right? The truth is revealed. So tell me about that calling. So how do you go
0: about living that out. I think it's interesting. I think a lot of people feel like maybe it's a little bit of a luxury to have a calling, to have a purpose, to, to focus on what I focus on, which is that greatness concept. But how do you go about living that out from a practical perspective?
1: It's become the ultimate filter. You know, anything I engage in, I ask myself sometimes very deliberately, other times it's just a subconscious flow, but is this actively supporting the purpose? And I listen, I believe purpose can be God given. That's how I choose to believe in it. But it could be self given. Like that, I think that part has little relevance. What's relevant is that it's a compelling reason to do what we do. And I've lived in the in my other businesses, unpurposeful business. I, I would try to declare a purpose. I I own a business that did a computer crime investigation. That's the one that was acquired by a Fortune five hundred. And I said, you know, the truth matters. That's what we do. We find the truth, and that's important really didn't resonate with my own story. So there there wasn't that compulsion to keep this going and going and going. As an author and living that burn of not experiencing entrepreneurial success as I defined it, in knowing and living this gap of what I wanted in reality, what I now call entrepreneurial poverty, it's become this kind of magnet pulling me forward. So before I was trying to kind of run on my own steam, build a business or do whatever. Now it's like I'm being magnetized I wake up in the morning, like, I gotta crank, I gotta be of service because this is this is so important to me. I think the ultimate definition is once you find purpose. And it's not easy. And it took me years of just thought and pondering. And there was no quippy line to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. Like, you know, that, that's the tagline of it. I had different flavors of it. But I knew I was on it when I started to feel more energy as I was serving it. As the day goes on, I used to drain more and more and like I can't wait to call at the end of the day. Now I get actually more and more energized. Like, oh, I'm on point. This is it. And uh, I'm physically tired at the end of a long day, if I choose to do a long day, but I am emotionally energized. I think once you start feeling that, you know you're on purpose.
0: So how do you bring that? I know you, obviously, your focus is on entrepreneurs and bringing that purpose, that calling into their business to yield long-term success. Obviously, I'm a huge believer the same Ideology in terms of having something beyond just the dollar sign and the the titles and the promotions, but practically speaking, how how do you infuse that into whether they're business owners or even just executives or just leaders in their own lives?
1: Great question. So just to give you context, we have a small business here. We have two buildings. We have twenty five employees. We're we're tiny, but it's enough to have a leadership, a second level management. So I'm a shareholder and owner of the company. And what I thought wrongly was. I have a purpose to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. That's the purpose of my business to do the same. And therefore, anyone that's attracted to that and served by that will rally in this company. But what I realized is it doesn't resonate with everyone here. They may touch on it. Many employees here have had parents that had their own businesses, but they don't aspire to have it. They know the roller coaster ride the entrepreneur goes through, and they want to serve that. But they all have their individual intentions for themselves. So, what we started to do. I'm actually writing about this now in my next book. It's called Intention Alignment. It's understanding what every employee wants, every person wants, leader, every level down to frontline, and understanding their personal vision. And for some people, it's very clear. You know, I I like to own a house one day, perhaps is a big grand vision for someone, or I want to uh, be able to spend the summers with my family or whatever it is, but we understand this. And then the job of leadership and myself, is to identify the corporate mission or goal I have. I want to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty, and I have now smart goals around that, metrics and numbers. That's where I want us to go as a shareholder. How do I help all of my colleagues achieve their individual personal intentions while marching toward it? If I can get us all moving in synchronicity, we've got an unstoppable force. And we're not perfect at it, but we're much closer at it. We are monitoring individual desires and goals and interests and dreams in alignment with achieving the corporate dream for a little business like ours. We believe it's hard to tell with other private companies, but we believe we are far more productive on a per individual basis. And tip here our 25 employees over 60%, 65% or so are part-timers, but they're producing at these high levels. So our Our growth and our revenue and our profitability is reflective of a much larger company. And I would argue we're doing it because we understand everyone's personal desires and interests.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point because when companies are small, you can rally people who are like-minded, who are really standing behind the mission. But as you get bigger, the realities are probably, yeah, people are attracted to it for different reasons. Like you mentioned, having the summers off, having a, a big enough paycheck, you know, to buy a big house. but just connecting to people's intention alignment. So allowing the mission, the vision, the values of the company to be authentically lived out in their jobs and their lives.
1: As, as we're going through these exercises, we, we have a quarterly meeting, a retreat, just to talk about the growth of the business and our individual growth. And uh, maybe two or three quarters back, one person said, you know, I really want to learn Spanish. Everyone here is an English speaker, so I want to learn Spanish. Another person said, I want that. I'm like, oh, I've been on Duolingo. I want to learn that. Ended up, six employees were really interested in this, so we were making a hire for an intern, and our president made it quite uh, a little bit of a shift. Instead of recruiting local talent, they went overseas, and we found a individual from Spain who obviously is a Spanish speaker among other English languages, who then worked here with us for three months and was actively introducing us to Spanish. You know, not the Duolingo style, but but cultural Spanish and and learning the language that. Would have never happened if we weren't eliciting or explaining what we all want for our own intentions. Now, the company could do something that was beneficial as a company and our employee. And our colleagues, myself, we feel supported in a way beyond just make more money, keep it up, maybe get a bonus check. Now it's like we're contributing to your lives. And uh, reciprocity is a natural human wiring. As you feel supported and served, you want to support and serve the common mission of the goal of the company. And that's, that's what's happening.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of what you talk about a lot, just to, I'll use the word customer centricity, but you're becoming employee centric by supporting and serving your employees, much like I know you advocate a lot for serving your, your clients, or your customers as well.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's uh, some literature out there. If you, you know If you put your employees first, they will naturally put your clients first. And I totally agree with that. I think what is missed by many companies is we look at our colleagues, our employees, and we simply give them the metrics around their job performance. Here's what's expected work so many hours or deliver so many results. If you do well at it, you'll get some kind of reward and kind of elevate quarter or next year to a little better performance. So, so you're going to get that kind of attaboy in the back, but you can do better for the rest of your life. I think that's how many businesses are wired. And our philosophy has become my philosophy is the human that matters most and their job performance will naturally increase. Their contribution to the company will naturally increase if they're cared for on the humanistic side. So we have weekly, literally weekly one on ones with every single employee. I don't do those meetings. It's run by our president, another teammate, but they meet individually. And, and sometimes these meetings are 10 minutes, sometimes they can go a half hour. But the opening question is, how are things going in your life? That's it. It's not, did you get these numbers done? Did you cross the T's and dot the I's? How are things going in your life? This constant connection. How are you doing it on your personal goals? In fact, our president just set up this sheet. It's the life wheel. I'm sure you've seen that where you rank your performance in different areas of your life, perhaps family, fitness, finance. So now she's deploying that, that we're monitoring our personal achievements. Now, I'm not saying the business is ignored. It's not like it's a big kumbaya. We talk about their job and what can we do within their job to further enhance their life, but what can they do in their life to further enhance the job? The interesting thing, too, is our, our retention. We've been around 15 years. Our retention is very high. Someone comes here, and, and, and some folks do leave. It's a rare occasion. Sadly, some people we have to terminate because it's not a good fit into our community here. But the folks that are fit typically stay for the long term. And we pay well, but we're not. they can make money, more money elsewhere. I think it's this communal family focus that you matter as an individual most. And we know by caring for that it will serve the company that that seems to be the stickiness
0: yeah, there's a obviously a big conversation in bringing your whole self to work. What I like is by using this life wheel as far as your one on one on ones you're actually measuring and evaluating people on their whole self at work, so it's like you're you're putting your money where your mouth is in terms of your you're saying do this, but also we're actually focused on helping support you in those ways, fitness goals, family goals, whatever those other spirituality goals, whatever they may be.
1: We're deploying, so there's two things I'm writing and researching now. One's called psychological safety. Another one that's lesser known is called psychological ownership and and perhaps is the most important determinant of an individual's success within their function, their role. Psychological safety is the concept where you can bring your entire self, your true unabashed self to A business or to any kind of community. And there won't be negative repercussions. You won't be humiliated or embarrassed or or hurt in some capacity. And uh, none of us, I think, brings the full 100% us, but we can get pretty close to it if we feel psychologically saved. I've done a lot of research and, and actually training now in DEI. And there's these communities that, shame on me, I never really appreciated just through some of my actions and stuff would feel, oh, I can't present the fact that I'm gay or something like that because uh, the way it may be perceived and maybe they'll compromise me. So people start withholding some of their experience. So one of it is how do I afford psychological safety to my company, my team members, my my colleagues? Psychological ownership is the one thing that has me so jazzed right now. Psychological ownership is this concept, this feeling or emotion of owning something and how we behave towards something that we own, we care for it more. Classic example is you can rent a car or buy a car. I've never seen a rental car at the car wash. You know, we don't care for it that much. But a car we own, we care for more. Now, here's what's interesting. I own a car, but I don't own it, own it. The bank owns it. I'm making the installments. So they legally own it, but I psychologically own it. So we don't have to give employees equity in the business, nor should we. In fact, there can be a negative consequence. Equity can translate into entitlement. I own this business. I deserve a big bonus. But you can give psychological ownership. Psychological ownership happens where the person has control. They're not task rabbited, here's what you need to do. They have control over the outcomes. They have intimate knowledge. They get an understanding for what they're doing. They get to learn deeper about it. And they can even personalize it to some degree. Just in our own office here, we set some things like we have a kitchenette. Erin owns that area. She's personalized it. She put in these shelvings that she likes and, and she's making it the way she wants. And that actually gives her more control. And she takes better care of that space as a result. I have ownership over certain things here. And sure enough, that's something I focus on. It's my area that I'm interested in caring for. It's a subtle difference between responsibility, ownership. Think about it, when you rent a car, you are responsible to return with the full tank of gas, you know, no scratches, whatever. When you own a car, you aren't given that. It's like, you, it doesn't say come home with a full tank of gas. You fill it up because it's yours. You're going to use it again. You care for it. Chances are you don't want to scratch. The second you see the first ding on your new car, it's like, oh my God, it's the worst day of my life. A ding on a rental, you don't care. So assignment of responsibilities actually encourages people to comply with what they have to do, but then exploit what they aren't required to do. When I get a rental car, yeah, I'll return it with a full tank of gas. But man, when I go out in the parking lot, I'm going to do donuts, okay? Because this isn't my car. So we don't want to give responsibilities, we want to give ownership. A subtle difference, a significant impact on how we behave.
0: Yeah, and no, it's a massive boost to organizations. People, you know, I think about pushing leadership into all tentacles of organizations, and that requires ownership. So how do you make that frontline salesperson, that customer service rep, the person who may hear about the new competitor, the, the pain point that you're not addressing, people feeling alienated by your message they're the ones who are going to hear that first. If they don't have that sense of ownership, you're not going to hear about it. They're just clocking in and clocking out.
1: Yeah, so some techniques are, first of all, is start using the word own. Say, you own this. This is your territory. So tell us your thoughts. Have that person actively involved in the development of thoughts and ideas around it. No greater sense of ownership than when we create. Think about it. Next time you tell your spouse, I tell my wife, hey, you got to go out and take the garbage out. As opposed to, and she'll and say, she like, screw you, as opposed to, gosh, the house is starting to smell bad. She's like, yeah, it's the garbage. You know what? I, I'm going to take the garbage out. Like, oh, thank you. If she creates the idea, now there's a likelihood of her following through is very high. And I'm not just saying that's for her. That's for all of humanity. When we create or conceive the idea, we own it. So we have to help our employees conceive the ideas around the outcomes. So we can discuss the outcome, the goal, but let them conceive the steps to get there. Personalization is a big deal, too is can you give someone an ability to make it their own? Just one last quick story. There was a landscaper I was interviewing, and he noticed that the work gloves they were going through was almost on a daily basis. These guys would tear apart these gloves and then throw them out. And gloves, these are work gloves. They weren't that expensive, five or six bucks. But imagine 20 guys, that's 120 bucks going through every day. Now it's a real big expense. Only thing he did was he gave people new gloves, same gloves, and had them write their name on it. Just by that, just by that personalization, now these guys are like, oh, those are my gloves. The work gloves now are lasting one or two weeks. That's a huge cost savings, but nothing else has changed except for personalization. Yeah, that's
0: a great way of demonstrating ownership as well, right? So now it's instead of a, gl- a set of gloves as part of this big pile, well, those, these are actually my gloves.
1: I, that's exactly what happened. You're exactly right.
0: I think the same thing applies too. I mean, I know you know this as a marketer, but co creating things with your, your clients and customers as well.
1: Oh yeah, then they take ownership of it, right? So when you do for your customer, that's great cuz they ordered whatever it is, but when they participate even at a small level, they're much more committed. You know sales techniques around this. If you want to sell someone and they got to you got to fill out a form, the best thing to do, your car salesperson, don't fill out the form in front of the customer. Hand them the form, have them just fill out the first few things. Hey, can you write your number on there a few things? And then take it back and fill out the rest of the form. Cuz they've been a participant in f- filling that form, the close rates go up. It sounds like some kind of like, you know, magic voodoo psychology tricks, but this is just how we behave in ownership. If we participate in the creation, we're more careful about that thing,
0: that object. So tell me about what's next. I know you have a new book coming out. Talk to me about that a bit.
1: Yeah. I uh, happen. And when I say happen, I strategically have it in my hand here. <laughs> but uh, this is the new book. It's called Clockwork Revised and Expanded. I wrote a book about how leaders and owners of companies can bring efficiencies to their departments, to the company as a whole. And I wrote the book five years ago. We subsequently have deployed it with thousands and thousands of businesses. We've gotten feedback on how to simplify it. So this is a rework of the book. It's about 60% new. It's about uh, 40% is the original framework has been reorganized to make it more efficient. But the goal of this book is for a department to run itself, for a company to run itself, which by the way, leaders get really concerned. They say, well, if the company runs by itself and doesn't need me, I'm out of a job. But now the reality is it can need you in a new way. You have your department or company running itself, you can reinsert yourself in a much more strategic way, more thoughtful way. One of my favorite stories that I include in this new book is Lynn manuel Miranda, the creator of uh, Hamilton, the famous Broadway show. Some people don't know this. That's not his first show. His first show was called In the Heights. It was moderately successful. It really didn't work so well. He also was working other jobs to keep his income going and was hustling his way through this. He was doing the grind and hustle that we're all told to do. Well, his wife had enough of it. and She said, we're going on vacation or else. Uh, you need a break. We need a break. And he did. Me, I would go to the beach and drink some Coronas. They went to the beach. He sat in the hammock and read a 818-page biography of a guy named Hamilton. And it was during this break, He said, oh my gosh, I have the greatest idea of my life. And he created Hamilton. Point of story, and he shares this actively, is for leaders to be great innovators is we need to afford ourselves the time to think. If we're actively managing or micromanaging, if we're actively engaged in the doing every day, we'll never get to elevate our business to the highest level. He attributes to creating the greatest idea he's ever had and arguably one of the greatest Broadway shows of all modern time, Because he took a break, because he designed, well, ultimately had the business need him for a period of time. We need to do the same thing. Get ourselves to the point where we're not needed in the business on the day to day, so we can think about the year to year.
0: Yeah, one of the CEOs that's in one of the CEO groups that I lead, he said CEOs shouldn't be busy, which I think haunted a lot of the the other CEOs. Like, wait, how how can I not be busy? But to your point, right? Those best ideas happen when you can actually step out of the day to day and think about. The big picture, the vision, uh, the long term goals of the organization.
1: Yeah, I I can't remember what CEO said this. uh, And I'm going to paraphrase, but said a CEO is paid these huge amounts of money because of three or maybe four critical decisions they make per year. That's what they're paid for. These are the big, here's where we're going decisions that are being made. There is tons of thought around that. I think it would be absurd to think that Jeff Bezos right now is packaging the next Amazon shipment order that comes in? Never. But he is thinking highly strategically. What's the next city that we should set up a location in? How are we going to enter the space of music distribution or whatever, or enter space now? Like That's the type of level stuff that we need to move ourselves. And the only way to get there is to first block and tackle the hustle and grind, get rid of that so that we avail ourselves the time to think. Yeah,
0: it's tough to do though, especially as you grow from a smaller to a larger organization or a smaller role to a larger role. And I mean, it's a great point, the three or four trajectory changing decisions of the year. It's not going to matter these small little decisions you may think it is, but that takes a shift for people to actually empower people and equip them to be able to make those other decisions that aren't those three to four.
1: Very, yeah, right. And it's very hard to do. I've been doing the clockwork process for my own business for five years. What's interesting is I got to a point where my business doesn't need me Then it became a lonely island. Like, okay, I'm thinking, but I want to do stuff. I'm a small business. I get joy from it. What's nice is once I structure and you structure your business to run without you, you have the right and the ability to reinsert yourself in a joyous capacity. I love being a spokesperson for the brand, so I love this. I love writing books. And so that's the two core functions I still do in my business, along with the strategic vision and thinking. Well, Mike, where can people
0: go to to find out about the book or pre-order it or order it? and just learn more about all that you're up to?
1: I think, you know, well, clockwork.life, because I believe it's a lifestyle, it's a lifestyle shift, is where you can get details in the book. So clockwork.life is the place to go. If you want to learn more about me, it's mikemichalowicz.com, but no one can spell McCallowitz, So I made a shortcut. It's a nickname from grade school. The only G-rated nickname I had. It's Mike Motorbike. So if you remember that rhyme, mikemotorbike.com, go there. Uh, it'll bring you to my site. You can check out all the books I've written. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal for years. You can get those articles on business leadership, and also I have a podcast. It's all at MikeMotorBike.com.
0: All right, MikeMotorBike.com. Well, thanks, Mike, for coming on today. Thank you, brother.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode
0: of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight in tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate
1: the podcast. Thanks, and see you all in the next episode.